0: Hello and welcome to the Kino Quickies podcast, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to 1930s Quota Quickie films. Every fortnight we gather together at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square, just off Tower Bridge Road in London, watch one of these odd little Quota Quickies, and then chat about it in a post-screening Q&A with a specially invited expert guest. The film we watched for this episode was the 1935 Flanagan and Allen comedy, with some musicy bits thrown in. A fire has been arranged. My name is Dominic De and along with our in-house Quota Quickie expert, the noble and patrician Dr. Lawrence Knapper of King's College London, we are more than halfway through this second season of Kino Quickies. In fact, there are only two films left. So don't stand on ceremony, book your tickets now and join in the fun. You'll find details about the remaining films and a booking link at ticketsource.co.uk forward slash quickies That's ticketsource.co.uk forward slash quickies By the way, the reason I gave Lawrence that celestial choir there is because when I was introducing the film at the Kino last Sunday, we suffered a couple of technical problems at the start and, thrown by this, I neglected to introduce him. Only a chorus of heavenly cherubs could make up for that egregious omission. Here's another one, just to be sure. So now, by the wonder of recorded sound, we can hear me forget to introduce Lawrence exactly as it happened. We're now zooming back in time to Sunday, November the twentieth, twenty twenty-two, where, after a heart-stopping moment when the recorder refused to work, we managed to get it back on track. Welcome to keynote again uh, for our fourth film, the second season. A fire has been arranged. Um, Hopefully this will be fixed by the time we get to the Q and A. My name is Dominic Delargy. Over there, we, in his customary seat, we have our uh, our eminent and revered uh, in-house Quota Cookie expert, and our guest is there, Steve. Steve wrote this book, the Bible of Quota Quickies, called Quota Quickies. The Bible of Quota Quickies. <laughs> so we've got Quota Cookie royalty in today, and and Robin's back from Thailand. As you can see, he's tanned and gorgeous. <laughs> So the film, I'm going to rattle through this, because even though it's quite a lightweight film, there's probably quite a lot to talk about. So it's a, it's a vehicle for Flanagan and Allen. They're the two chaps in the hats and the leather. Uh, they were a very, very popular and well-known uh, variety act at the time. They were one-third-ish, if math is right, of the Crazy Gang. And Steve was saying before, he saw the Crazy Gang, probably not the 1930s, I'm assuming, though, because <laughs> they did last for quite a long time. And I think this is their first film as an official double act. The Crazy Gang were also in films as well. Um, it also stars Rob Wilton, who you might be familiar with. You're certainly familiar with his style. He, he always plays these kind of incompetent uh, blokes in charge of stuff. And um, in this, he's an incompetent fire chief um, and uh, plays the same character. Really. A very influential guy. Les Dawson, apparently, was a big fan. You can see a little bit Les Dawson in him. Alistair Sim is the other big name in the film, uh, as in the famous Scrooge. He's 35 when he made this, and he looks about 55, but I think he looks like that from, from his teens anyway. And it was directed by Leslie Hiscott, who was a kind of... Uh, quite quite an accomplished but kind of workmanlike director. He also directed next week's film, Death on the Set, and it also stars the Buddy Bradley Rhythm Girls, who I didn't know much about at all. I mean, they're only, they're only in... About three or four films, but Buddy Bradley, it turns out, was a, quite a major figure in them, um, British choreography, even those from those uh, american and the reason, just very quickly, the reason I, I, I like these films i 'm interested in these films from this period is they don 't know what 's about to happen you know at the end of this decade we 're in World War Two, and the whole world 's gone to absolute uh, rubbish and they don 't know it and, and what 's quite tragic, tragic about this film is. Uh, one of the lead characters, Mary Lawson, who, I th- she's one of the fire ladies down there, and uh, she actually died in the Blitz in 1941, and she was, a, you know, she had a very promising career, she was very young, and her and her husband both were killed in an air raid, it's very sad. So, film, set-up, chat, etc., and before the film, we're going to have, as usual, the Talking Pictures TV trailers, because we love Talking Pictures TV, and they help us financially, so I hope you enjoy it, and um, I'll see you in about an hour and a bit. a bit. Thank you very much. And as usual, we're going to leave the keynote there for a while and let the audience watch A Fire Has Been Arranged. We'll be rejoining them later for the Q&A with two highly respected and eminent professors of film and me, a bloke who's just winging it. But in the meantime, just so you know what we're talking about later on, I'm going to try to bring you up to speed with the plot of A Fire Has Been Arranged through what I call here in my script, this detailed, illustrated synopsis. Now, this synopsis should by rights be a fairly swift one, because with this being a vehicle for Flanagan and Allen, chunks of the film are given over to their spiel crosstalk and wisecracks and what have you plus there are a couple of big set piece musical numbers featuring the buddy bradley rhythm girls and no mere synopsis can do justice to them none of this moves the plot along in any particular way and the story itself is pretty light so as they say in nearly all podcasts these days let's get right into it As the film opens, we find ourselves in the middle of a robbery in a jewellery store. The owner of the shop and his teenage daughter are bound and gagged, looking on helplessly as faceless desperadoes smash the cabinets and help themselves to the booty. Luckily, though, the police are hot on their tails.
1: The bandits have been seen going through Uxbridge, sir. Which way? Hold on a second. Heading for Shepparton, sir. Fiat car, three men in it. General call. Hold Fiat car with three men in it. Special warning. Slough, Amersham, Beaconsfield, Windsor and Sunningham.
0: And now, somewhere on that route, we meet our bandits. The three-man gang, made up of Bud Flanagan, Chesney Allen and Hal Walters, stop at a the field. They bury their ill-gotten treasure and mark the spot, not with an X, but with an axe, by pacing an exact number of steps from the burial spot to a large tree and marking it with the chopper. With the jewels safely hidden, they're making good their escape when a police patrol spots them and takes them into custody. A newspaper headline tells us that they have been sentenced to ten years behind bars.
1: Remember, if you behave yourselves, you can earn three months remission of sentence in each year. But if you don't, you You know know what what to expect. expect. Ah, I thought we should be seeing you three here again before long. Oh yes, I told you we'd be back. Yes, and let's have a decent bit of surface this time. When I ring that bell, that means we are ready for the pudding, Mrs. Francis. Oh, are yeah. Come on, get undressed, all of you. Come on.
0: With the processing of the felons complete, we turn our attention back to that special tree that's been marked with an axe. The tree is still there, but the field in which it stood has disappeared. This is because we have shot forward in time by ten years, and where there was once a field, and of course that buried stash, There is now a department store in its place, a department store called Shuffle and Cuts. We now have a musical interlude in which dozens of the Shuffle and Cuts store assistants tap dance all over the shop. These are the Buddy Bradley Rhythm Girls. We also meet Oswald Blenkinsop, played by Rob Wilton. He's a floor walker and oversees the activities of the young men and women who work there. We also have shop assistants, Betty, played by Mary Lawson, and Toby, played by Harold French. The musical number complete, the shop staff man their positions in preparation for the crowds. There's a sale on today, so it's going to be a busy day at Shuffle and Cuts. As the crowds surge in, we meet Mr Shuffle, played by Denier Warren. He's approached by Toby.
1: Oh, excuse me, sir. Mr. Cutt wants to see you. Oh, what did he say? He simply said send Mr. Shuffle to see me at once. At once.
0: Mr. Shuffle seems disturbed by this. Toby wanders over to Betty.
1: I just told Shuffle he's wanted in the office. He doesn't seem to want a girl. Looks as though he'd rather leave the building altogether. Yeah, something going on up there. What's the extraordinary general meeting of shareholders called for? To call Shuffle and Cut's number, I should think. About time.
0: So maybe that's the reason for Mr Shuffle's discomfort. There's an extraordinary general meeting taking place of the Shuffle and Cut shareholders. Up in the office, we learn why Mr Shuffle is concerned about the meeting when he discusses business with his partner, Mr Cut, played by Alastair Sim.
1: I've had a bad night, Cut. I'm worried out of my life. No need to advertise the fact. We're on the brink of disaster, Cut. Well, we mustn't let the shareholders know. (laughs) This is a time for buoyancy, cheerfulness. (laughs) How can I be buoyant and cheerful, knowing what I know and what they think? Now look here, we must play for time. We'll get time, all right. It's absolutely essential that they should think we're easy in mind. May I remind you, gentlemen, the meeting's assembled, and we've been waiting for half an hour. (laughs) All right, we'll be with you in one moment, my dear Colonel.
0: (laughs) At the meeting, the disgruntled shareholders complain about the losses the company is making.
1: I ask you to remember that only ten years ago, The spot in which you are now sitting was nothing but a field of buttercups, daisies and grass. Grass is gone. So is our patience. So is our capital. Well, then, what do you propose? We intend to shut down. Here here! Oh, but, gentlemen, you amaze me. How can we amaze you? You've been told often enough. Oh, but you can't do this, gentlemen. It would mean appointing a receiver, angry meetings of creditors. People might regard us with suspicion. We do.
0: But it's no good. The shareholders are unanimous. The business must be shut down. Shuffle and cut are in deep trouble. Down on the shop floor, Betty is looking despondent and Toby asks her why.
1: Hello, you don't look very bright. I don't feel very bright. It's ten years ago since my father's ruined in that smash and grab raid. You never told me. Yes. He was a jeweller. They tied him up and got away with about 10,000 pounds of the stuff. Oh, wasn't he insured? No. Did they ever find the crooks? Yes, but not the jewellery. The crooks got ten years. The prison authorities have promised to let me know when they're being released. They're coming out at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning.
0: Over at the prison, those selfsame robbers, Bud, Chas and Hal, are going through the release procedure. Oddly, even after 10 years of penal servitude, the boys haven't aged a day. I think it's safe to assume that their first port of call will be that now non-existent field to locate the attaché case full of stolen gems. Over at Shuffle and Cuts we're treated to another musical interlude, courtesy of the buddy Bradley Rhythm Girls. This time they're all wearing fire brigade helmets because this enormous group of young women in flimsy dresses and tap shoes are in fact the Shuffle and Cuts in-house fire brigade and their leader is the ineffectual Mr. Blenkinsop. right,
1: girls, gather round.
0: But there's no time for such frivolity in Mr. Cuts office. Things are very serious. While Blenkenstop drills his fire brigade ladies in the yard outside, Cut tentatively introduces to Shuffle his plan for saving their skins.
1: Shuffle, I've thought it all out. What? Have you ever heard of arson? Arson? Yes. We must have a fire. You mean start a fire? A raging inferno, Shuffle. Oh, but we couldn't do a thing like that. Why, we might get pinched. Well, we might as well get pinched for arson as the other thing. But but couldn't we find someone to, to put up the money to carry us over? What on? You want an independent accountant to examine our books? Good heavens no. Exactly. Well, couldn't we have just a little fire, Cut? Just enough to burn the books? No, no shuffle, no hard measures. We must burn the lot.
0: Clever. An insurance scam. But then Cut makes a chilling discovery. There are only 24 hours remaining on the insurance policy, so the heinous Act must take place before it expires. Cut appears to have decided that it would be Shuffle who must start the fire, but Shuffle is very nervous about the prospects of this. If only there were some desperate criminals available who might be persuaded to dabble in a bit of arson. Outside, three desperate criminals, Bud, Chaz, and Hal, have arrived at the spot where the field used to be.
1: I can tell you, this is the tree, look, I marked it. There's the bee, I marked it. I ought to know. It can't be that way. No, the storm, eh? Don't you understand? This store has gone up during our time in prison. Now we'll pace it out.
0: Upon pacing the correct number of steps from the tree, they find themselves in the lobby of Shuffle and Cutts. Their pacing and bickering aroused the suspicion of security, and their frog marched off to see Mr Shuffle and Mr Cutt.
1: These are the men in question, sir. What were they doing, exactly? Well, I imagine they were contemplating a haul. What have you to say for yourself? We are here under false pretenses. You admit it, eh? We admit nothing. Hardened customers, eh? Don't you think we'd better hand them over to the authorities? You wish to prefer a charge, sir? But how can we prefer a charge if they haven't actually done something? You surprise me, Shuffle. The point is not what they haven't done, but what they were going to do. For all we know, there might be three jailbirds. They are, sir. I'm an ex-member of the force, sir. It was once my duty to arrest them, and very troublesome they were. Three hardened criminals, and just out of jail. Yes, came out this morning, sir. These are the sort of men who steal the fruits of honest toil. Men who revel in their ill-gotten gains. Scum shuffle, scum. Why, for all we know, they might even be murderers. Oh, just a minute, Governor. You deny it. Of course, you deny it. Your type deny everything. Well, I might have tapped a man over the head with a bottle, or maybe hit him with a piece of lead piping, but not murder. They've done everything from burglary right down to arson. Arson? Did you say arson? Yes, sir. Absolutely diabolical. Did you hear that Shuffle? Unspeakable.
0: Shuffle and Cut can't believe their luck. Arsonists. Thinking on his feet, Cut alters his attitude and claims to have sympathy for these poor men who have fallen into crime through no fault of their own. He decides, much to the surprise of everybody else in the office, that he will give them the sort of opportunity that life so far has not afforded them. After the police leave, Cuts makes a proposition to the three scallywags.
1: We have decided to give you an opportunity.
0: What sort of an opportunity?
1: I would like to work
0: here. What at?
1: Now, what do you suggest, Mr. Reglin? Well, if you really mean it's hers. Men's wear, ladies' wear, hardware. Anywhere will do us. Then it's done. And you will help them in the... effort to reform. Mm -hmm. I understand. And if one department doesn't suit them, let them try somewhere else. Come this way, will you?
0: After trying out their sales skills in various departments throughout the store, Toby comes to tell the boys that they haven't done very well and that they are wanted up in the managing director's office. After they leave, we discover that they have been recognised by Betty.
1: I wonder what they're doing here exactly.
0: You sure they are the three men who robbed your father's shop?
1: Why, of course, you've seen the pictures yourself. Yeah, well, we'd better keep our eyes on them. Well, we know the stuff was never found.
0: I know. If this was a Japanese horror film, the three crooks would already be halfway towards a gruesome death at the hands of a vengeful daughter but it's a quota quickie, so instead they're up in the office with Mr. Shuffle and Mr. Cutt. Mr. Cutt gets straight to the point.
1: Arson is the topic of conversation. A fire must be arranged. But what about the Mizuma? Mazuma? <laughs> of course, <laughs> the Mazuma. <laughs> it's very gratifying to meet men who grasp a situation so promptly. We said five hundred pounds, didn't we, Shuffle? You did. And I suppose he said a thousand. Or was it fifteen hundred? A thousand? Shuffle and cuts must be raised to the ground and a thousand pounds will emerge from the ruins. Would you like to earn a thousand pounds between half past one and three o'clock tomorrow? Tomorrow? Tomorrow or never, it's urgent. Urgent? It's worse than that, it's inrageous. Inrageous, outrageous. Outrageous. Well, perhaps we'd better leave them to consider at the moment, eh, Shuffle?
0: The boys are worried that if they agree to burn the place down tomorrow, they won't be able to find their stolen plunder. But Chas thinks that given enough time and leeway, they can retrieve the jewels and start the fire. The bit about the jewels, of course, must be kept secret from Shuffle and Cut.
1: i tell you what we'll do. We'll take a look around the store and find a likely spot. Yes, we may have to do a bit of digging. Digging? Digging. What for? Well, every fire must have a good foundation. Excellent, excellent. In the meantime, we'll think out the best way to avoid suspicion. We'll leave it there for the moment and meet you tomorrow morning and make the final arrangements. Right. You'd better go through the boardroom and down the private stair. Very good, sir.
0: The boys leave to go off on their reconnaissance mission around the store. In reality, they're trying to find the perfect digging spot to find the loot.
1: But, but if anything is suspected and we pay them a thousand pounds, it'll take a bit of explaining away. If we pay them a thousand pounds, it would, shuffle. you seriously think that we should be justified in paying a thousand pounds into the hands of these men? Think of the temptations of the world shuffle and what such a sum of money might lead them into. Are you going to twist them too? Mm. Don't be so crude. They're to say rather that we're going to save them from temptation.
0: Downstairs, the master criminals are honing in on the attaché case of stolen jewels. Sorry, Al.
1: You go in the basement, we'll tap on the floor. When you're just below us, you tap back. Okay.
0: Toby and Betty are spying on them from the stairwell. It's
1: the crooks. What on earth are they doing? Hello? Hello? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven,
0: eight. Toby and Betty investigate in the basement and disturb Hal just as he's marked the spot with a large chalk cross. Toby sends him packing. Get out of here! And then Betty notices the cross. What he
1: you done that for? I wonder if. Yeah, let's have a look.
0: They pull back the carpet. They may have just twigged what all of this is about. At midnight, the boys arrive back at the basement, laden down with pickaxes and shovels. They prize up the flagstone and discover the attaché case, and it looks like it's been disturbed.
1: Well, here it is. What are you doing on the top here? Why, well, it looks as if someone's been here before
0: us. The case is empty. They have. All that remains is a mocking note from Betty. Now
1: we'll have to burn the building down.
0: The next day, the conspirators have made their plans.
1: Now, the rest of us will go along to a roadhouse and establish an alibi. And since you are volunteered to stay behind, you know what to do, don't you? Yes, I wait here for a telephone message from you. Then cut the wires, then set fire to the place. Excellent. Now we'll all go along, and as there isn't much time to spare, we'll have to hurry. We'll leave by the staff entrance. (laughs)
0: Leaving Hal behind to perform the diabolical deed, Bud, Chez, Shuffle and Cut leave the store in order to have lunch somewhere where they'll be seen by a large number of people, thereby establishing an alibi. Under instructions to be as conspicuous as possible, Bud and Chairs perform magic tricks at the bar, ensuring that their presence many miles from Shuffle and Cut will be remembered by as many witnesses as possible. Meanwhile, Shuffle is getting cold feet and is beginning to panic. He says the whole arson plan should be called off. Cut pretends to agree and goes to the restaurant phone supposedly to tell how to call the whole thing off, but in reality he does the exact opposite. Hello,
1: hello. Hello, hello. Is that Walters? Yes. Light it up and cut the wires. Mm-hmm
0: cut triumphantly returns to his seat in celebratory mood.
1: Waiter, two more brandies please. Last drink, sir. Yes, last drink. Did you say last drink? The bar closes at half past two, sir. Half past two? It's only a quarter to two. Sorry sir, it's 2.30. 2.30? And how is it my watch says a quarter to two? What does it matter what time? Because I've just told Walters to light up. And the insurance runs out at two, and if
0: if it's 2.30... He rushes back to the phone, but it's too late. Hal has already cut the phone wires in preparation for starting the fire. Out of order. In desperation, Cut turns to Bud and Chairs. Listen,
1: you started the fire. Well, that's what you wanted, wasn't no, it? No, no, no. The insurance has run out. We must stop it.
0: Well, what's it worth?
1: Another thousand.
0: All right, we'll do it. You'll
1: come at once. We'll be there. At once.
0: The boys dash back out to the car, but as they zoom off, we realise that Shuffle and Cut are in the wrong vehicle, and they get left behind. They're now stranded, while Bud and Ches are oblivious to the fact that they have no passengers. And now somehow, in a desperate attempt to get back to the shop to prevent the fire from breaking out, Bud and Chez have found themselves driving along a railway line with a train rapidly approaching from behind. They drive as fast as they can to escape the swiftly moving engine and enter a tunnel at breakneck speed. Unfortunately, the train is travelling at even necker speed and roars into the tunnel closely behind them. A collision seems inevitable. Surely, Flanagan and Alan are doomed. And on that cliffhanger, with our anti-heroes Bud and Ches facing almost certain death, shuffle and cut, abandoned by the side of a road somewhere in the home counties, Hal starting a fire that is no longer required, and the attractive young ladies of the in-house fire brigade, none the wiser to any of this, we must step away from all this comedic excitement and return to the keynote for the Q&A. Don't panic, though. After the discussion, we'll return to the film to find out how it all ends, and there will be multiple turn-back warnings in case you'd rather avoid spoilers. For now, though, the audience have retaken their seats, clutching their replenished glasses. Robin, our heroic soundman, appears to have fixed the technical problems. And, sandwiched between myself and Lawrence on stage, is Steve Chibnall, author of the book Quota Quickies, which is available at all major retail outlets. Let's see what happens now. When Robin fades up the mics and find out what we all thought about Flanagan and Allen's, A Fire Has Been Arranged. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming back. I had a sense, a slightly nervous sense in there that it wasn't going down brilliantly well. But then there was laughter, when I hoped there would be laughter. Could I have a quick show of cheers as to how good people thought it was? Yay! I'd put that at, what, (laughs) 61% good. That's all right.
2: So all right. There are some distractors in the audience, so we'll, we'll, be, we'll be taking them out and shooting them later. Good.
0: That's a higher score than the, um, the Brexit vote, anyway. Isn't it? <laughs> so, Steve, I'll be checking. Hello. I've got your book here. I'll be checking all your answers in real time, fact checking to Good. make sure you get your stats right. There is an index. There is, yeah. It's actually too dark to read it, so I can't. Look. So, tell us a little bit about the background of this film. I hear there's a story behind it.
3: There is a story. In the, in the early 1930s, there was a spate of insurance fraud um, and fires. Michael Powell made a film called The Fire Raisers the year before this film was made, 1934. And the film that we've just watched was written soon after that. And it was written by the kind of in-house writing team at Twickenham Studios, which was the studios of Julius Hagen. It was made at the new studios at Twickenham. Twickenham had an old studio. And then Julius Hagen decided that um, the the money was going to be in uh, first features rather than second features, which is mainly what he'd made. You can tell this is a first feature because it's set in daylight. And a lot of the original (laughs) um, quota quickies at Twickenham were made during the night. He worked 24 hours a day. There were shifts. So, this one is, is one of his new, um, more expensive productions, made at the new studios. It was eventually released in October of 1935, and in that very same month, what happened? Many of us know. The old studio at Twickenham burnt down. <gasps> um, had a fire been arranged, is the question. <laughs> one might say that the writers... Uh, of this film um, had maybe had some inside knowledge.
0: <laughs> and isn't it rumoured that lots of the more valuable equipment was removed just before the fire happened? Or it could that? well be.
3: I know I, I know. one of the things that, that was lost was, was quite a lot of the Twickenham archive including the stills. But it's an interesting story. It's a strange coincidence.
0: Yeah. Spooky. <laughs> and this is part of his, this film is part of, of Julius Hagen's Pushed towards becoming, you know, what would you say? Pucker, pucker. Yeah, that's the food, <laughs> like the pies. This was there was a handful of two or three films, wasn't there? Was it? And does this constitute one of that group of films that was?
3: Yeah, yeah, it's one of the, one of the like Scrooge was one of the, the more more expensive films. That um, new production roster didn't last too long because the studios and Judith Hagen went bust uh, at the end of nineteen thirty six. So again, there, there are references in the film to, to that kind of thing, you know, that, that the, um, the institution, in this case a, a department store, but you could say, you know, you could transfer that into a film production studio, um, was about to go bust. And it did go bust.
2: Uh, I mean, you can see that it's one of the new things because it says that the first title card says that it's distributed by ambassadors. Yeah, who were they then? Film distributors. Well, they were the they were the basic the film distributors that he kind of invented to to distribute these big these bigger budget kind of uh, would be first features. I, mean, I think it's interesting that idea that S- Steve's talking about in terms of like the kind of self reflexivity, I guess, of the film because you know later on. um well, in fact, it, perhaps even in this very year, I think. I can't remember what year it is. Uh, Flanagan and Alan are involved in another um, film which is also highly self-referential about the film industry, a film called OK for Sound. Oh, yeah. Um, There's a character there who's a sort of, you know, northern, you know, industrialist who is taking over the studios as they're going bust. And, you know, he's clearly rank. And there's all kinds of uh, references to to things that are going on in the film industry. Um,
0: And at the time, would contemporary audiences got, this or is it i'm not sure they would have got the the connection that
2: you're making between the film and 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 the burning down of st margaret's but
3: i'm making no accusations <laughs> Lawrence, at all
2: but i think they would have got some of the other references about you know uh, but well certainly that reference about rank okay for sound is set in a film studio and they go around making puns out of the titles of films that have been
0: released that year and so forth so so tell us about flanagan allen because it's Up until quite recently, I'd only really, to be honest, I used to confuse them with Flanders and Swan, (laughs) Uh, only because the name I think Flanders Flanagan. Um, (laughs) Do you know a little bit about their kind of background, how they met, and how they got to this stage of their careers?
2: Uh, Yeah, they they met during the war. Um, uh, Bud Flanagan is from a Polish Jewish East End, kind of his parents were. Born in Poland, and they kept, so they're their first-generation immigrants. Um, and he, he meets um, Chesney Allen in the trenches. They're both uh, in the First World War together. But they don't f- sort of come together as a kind of comic duo until the mid-1920s when they're in a show starring Florrie Ford, who you will remember from, say, With Flowers. And they form a double act at that point. You know, it's basically this act... Allen being the kind of straight guy and uh, Flanagan being the, the the sort of more comic guy. By this this is their first film, but by this time they've already sort of uh, appeared in uh, on stage in a series of reviews with the Crazy Gang, and the Crazy Gang are them and two other similar kinds of double acts, and then a third, a you know, well a, I suppose a seventh <laughs> uh, 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 Monsignor Eddie Gray, and they. They're massively successful on the stage, The Crazy Gang, in a series of reviews, uh, right up until the sort of, I suppose, well, the mid 1950s. Um, and, and actually, Bud Flanagan continues through until the, till his death, really. He's on stage until his death.
0: They played the Palladium, didn't they? They packed it out for years on end. Palladium, and the,
2: the other place where they were sort of regularly was the Victoria Palace. Which is where you saw him,
3: Steve? Yeah, I, I think I saw him at the Palladium. I was I was very young. I was eight or nine or something, and um, their kind of comedy didn't kind of resonate with me at that at that age. So I didn't get off to a good start, really, with with Flanagan and Allen. But just to just to clarify, this is their first film um, in which they are the lead actors. Uh, they had made two shorts before that. Uh, it's Flanagan and Allen, uh, sort of half-hour films. And they'd also p- played as a double act in another earlier full-length film. But this is the first full-length film
0: um, in which they star. And they are the... I mean, it's sold as a Flanagan and Allen vehicle. And he's chucked some money at, at the film, hasn't he? Because I, what I didn't realise until recently was that the the department store interior... I mean, I, I assumed, I, li- I looked at it, I thought, oh, that's Whiteley's. They've gone to Whiteley's overnight and said, there's a tenor. Uh, <laughs> but that's a set, that's an actual built set. He so burned it, yeah. yeah. yeah, it, it. Burn it down. Yeah. Yeah. burn burned down Whiteley's. I, <laughs> I white thought was like, it's just special effects or something on that. But, but it does seem I to be, now. and the exterior, I mean, that's a full kind of set. They just burn into the ground. So is it a quota quickie? No. <laughs> um not not really oh, uh, not no. not on the strict
3: definition of the term it didn't play i don't think as a second feature a supporting feature um it was designed either as a first feature or a co-feature um its budget would have been rather more than a, a second feature budget which was generally between about 3000 and 8000 pounds this one would have probably been in the region of twelve to fifteen thousand.
2: I mean, I think that's all true, but I think if you'd asked somebody like Michael Balkan or Alexander Corda if this was a, you know, he they would have said, oh yeah, that wouldn't exist if the quota of act didn't exist, wouldn't they?
3: Yeah, this uh, this was the problem. I mean, Alexander Corda was was making big budget films for an international market, and and. He had a great success with The Private Life of Henry VIII in um, 1934, which was a huge hit in America. And so from that moment on, a lot of British independent filmmakers thought, oh, if he can do that, we can do that. And they started upping their budgets and aiming to sell to the American market, which in the end, was a, w- that strategy was a failure because the Americans were canny enough to keep those films out of their market. Corda's films they showed, especially when they started making them in colour. Most of the other British independents didn't get that kind of distribution in America. One of the most famous um, missing, I believe lost, quote quickies, is called The Private Life of Henry the <laughs> Ninth,
4: <laughs> And that's,
3: that's um, a sought-after film because it's the first film made by Hammer Studios as a production company.
2: I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting about this film is that actually all of the stars are on the up, as, as opposed to quite a few of the quota quickies that we've seen where the stars are on the down. If you see what I mean. You know, there's a certain point where you can get stars cheap. One is when they're on the way up, and the other is when they're on the way down. And these, all of these guys are on
0: their way up. Including the Buddy Bradley Rhythm girls. <laughs> Your obsession. I love them. They don't do much dancing. No. <laughs>
4: They do, do a, a lot bit of, of dancing walking in the around first in skirts, one.
0: But yeah. they don't do a lot of dancing. The, the Fire Engine song, they just sort of march in time. But Buddy Bradley was a proper choreographer, wasn't he? He wasn't just some kind of bloke that Hagen had in the back room with H. <laughs> he was a proper, And he had a, he had a dance school on Old Compton Street, and yeah. on New Compton Street. Low Rent Busby Berkeley. Yeah, um, so was he low rent there? Was that was that the thing?
2: Uh, I mean, I think it's interesting question. I mean, that low rent Busby Berkeley is an interesting. Basically, everybody who's a dance who's a dance director in the 1930s is a low rent Busby Berkeley because Busby Berkeley is so spectacular. Buddy Bradley came over to England. He was a black uh, American. He came over to England with the production of Evergreen starring Jesse Matthews on stage. Um, and that's how he got to the uk and he stayed in the uk and he worked on quite a lot of those jesse matthews you know, like they are big they are proper internationally ambitious um uh, musicals and he was the dance director for most of those films so much so that actually when she appears in this is your life in the 1960s he appears as one of the guests like oh it's his body badly blah, blah, blah. how marvelous and you know you'd expect if he was working with Jesse Matthews for him to have quite a high profile elsewhere, but actually the dance school is the is the sort of main imprint that he leaves. Really, it's quite hard to get any more information about him.
0: And did he appear in films, or was he just be behind the scenes? He kind appears of like? as a dancer
2: in Evergreen. I mean, I've like he's credited as a dancer in Evergreen, and I've looked, I've seen Evergreen many times, and I've never quite been able to identify him. Um, I, I want to ask Steve
0: some, because uh, we've got the God of the QQQQQQ QK, QK, Bible here. I want <laughs> to ask God some... of the QQ
3: Bible? Yeah. Put that on the CV.
0: <laughs> I want to ask some sort of generic questions about Quota Quickies, but first of all, anything from the audience on this film?
4: Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that, and I think that uh, slightly impugning the Buddy Bradley dancers there. they were tapping away quite merrily in the first number. <laughs> I thought that was quite... Uh, they nice. were. Um, there,
3: there was some hip action. Yeah. As you say, as the well.
4: sort of film itself is, you, you know, you can see how it's sort of grown out of the review styles that they would that, that they would have been doing in the West End at the time with the crazy gang. So, um, but I also wanted to ask what what happened to uh, a lot of these sort of quite a quickie, because my grandparents all were avid Cinema goers in this period, and I watched a lot of movies with them on TV growing up, and they never mentioned anything about you know like the lesser films or these quickies and stuff. You know, it was mainly the kind of you know the 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 feature films that you're talking about. You know, great fans of uh, Flanagan and Allen and stuff and so i wanted to know sort of what happened to some of this because i said, remember from your book you were saying sometimes these movies would be shown you know when when the usherettes were cleaning up afterwards I Any, mean, just so long as they were shown on the screen at the time you know that that allowed them to be uh you know, so what sort of what happened to a lot of these movies and did they ever really get shown again after they were shown sort of once or twice as okay.
3: Well, they are quota films. They were called quota films at the time because they were made to satisfy the quota regulations, which meant you know a certain proportion of films shown in British cinemas had to be made in Britain. Um, so that was their first function. There is this story, which I've traced to an article in the era in 1935, about certain... American owned cinemas, notably Paramount, MGM, in metropolitan centres, showing the films in the mornings without an audience. It's a good story. It's got some element of truth because there's evidence that some of those cinemas actually played the British quota quickie first around 11 o'clock in the morning. Not necessarily when... Yeah, you know, when the cleaners were in, but when there was a very small audience, so they showed it, and sometimes they showed it twice, up till lunchtime, and then they showed the main American film made by their studio. So that there's an element of truth in that, but really these these films were more popular, and more widely shown in provincial suburban cinemas, not necessarily working class cinemas um because to some extent there there were there, there was a resistance to british films in oh. some um working class areas of cities they were mainly even popular in uh the kind of suburban cinemas uh in the the kind of new middle class housing estates uh which were which were springing up in the in the 1930s and in certain areas of the country notably You know, East Anglia, South West, rural areas where, uh, as far as we know, some of them went down quite well.
2: It's sort of interesting that idea that you were talking about in terms of the idea of like an A film and a B film. I mean that's the sort of model that would apply to city centre, like big city centre cinemas but you know there are there are crappy flea shit flea pits in <laughs> Sheringham on the North Norfolk <laughs> coast who wouldn't who wouldn't be doing that they would be showing the quota quickie as the main yes. as the main feature yeah. it's sort of like what we forget is that cinemas came in you know they, they were huge picture palaces but they also they were tiny little
0: flea pits and they had completely different programmes they, they might show
3: programs. two quota quickies as a double bill
2: yeah yeah, yeah. totally
0: yeah. I've often wondered if they kind of received wisdom about Quota Quickies that yeah you know, they're terrible and you know the cleaners doing the fag ends and stuff is was is that a kind of metropolitan elite and that's where the film reviewers come from absolutely yeah. well, and that
2: story about the cleaners is repeated by Michael Balkan, isn't yes. it, in his autobiography and yeah. it like it serves him really well because he's a producer of a of you know ambitious international films so I think it gets recirculated and it also I mean, you know this better than me, but the impression I got from the research I did was that Quota Quickie doesn't really get invented as a phrase until, like, we're heading towards the, you know, the point where they're talking about what's going to happen at the end of the first run of the first act. So it's like the industry itself is sort of saying, like, let's change this legislation in certain ways and... And the quota quickies, as an idea, is sort of circulates much more then than it did before.
3: Yes, because by then they want a quality threshold yeah. for um,
0: for quota pictures. Yeah. So you have to spend more money on them. Did I read in your book that only five percent of quota quickies still exist, or is that uh,
3: misremembering of? The I I think that's misremembering. I think I might I might have said uh, less than fifty percent of of quota quickies. Um, are still known to exist, and that's probably true. I think I think uh, you know the, the amount of quota we can see now uh, is much larger than when I was doing the book. You know, we had to book a special you know session at the at the BFI na- National Archive, and they bring you things on celluloid, which you then had to lace up. Um, oh, happy days! Um, <laughs> now, but now we've got Talking Pictures
0: TV. They show loads of the th- yeah. quota quickies on there. Network have produced this whole series of DVDs. That's how I got in Passive Footman, the, um, the Ealing Rarities, which are really good series. Yeah. And there's the 1930s comedies, the 1930s musicals. That's a treasure trove. Yeah, the treasure.
2: availability is much, much greater than it, yeah. than it was. But I think it's still true to say a lot of them are lost. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Fallon and Allen made a film called Underneath the Arches, which doesn't exist anymore. It's the one
3: after this, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's lost. So, and that's not unusual to find, like lots of Max Miller's films from this period. Also, Quota Quickies, also lost. I mean, do I know you Max not a Miller. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm getting the sense that you know, this comedy stuff is a bit marmitey. No, no. Well, yeah, and I there just, are just there are some I'm, members of our audience who really did not like this film and thought that the Flanagan were very
0: unfunny. <laughs> uh, well, but uh, I think you do come away <laughs> thinking they're nice people. Max Miller, I just think you're obviously an absolute. <laughs> Person I wouldn't like. Are there, what are the quota quickies, Steve? That are out that you would like to find in someone's loft? Apart from a, a loft. the from the private life of Henry the Ninth. Yeah, yeah.
3: There's, there's a Brian. film called Badgers Green. Oh, was that lost? Which was it was remade in the in the 1940s at the kind of Ranks Highbury Studios, but the original is from the early 30s, and that was a was you might say a hit, a hit quota quickie. Um, it's about cricket, which, you know, which is interesting as far as I'm concerned, uh, but it might not appeal to the American audiences. But it, it's it's lost. I have a still of, from it on the cover of the to say, but which that's you might picture? hold up now and show yes, everybody, because they'll it. want to get on Amazon straight away. <laughs> <laughs> it's a,
0: somebody um, in a sort of blazer and... Um Oh, I didn't yeah. that was a lost film. I knew it was from Badger's Green. You know, there's a
3: few stills that's, that remain from it. That is actually a, a slide, which I have in my own collection. Uh, you know, one of those glass slides, coming attractions that they used to project onto the onto the screen. Because quite a quick Spine Life didn't have trailers. A few did. But um, mostly, the, 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 as a coming attraction, they were advertised with these slides. Just a um, still? Just a still. You probably have someone playing organ or something over, over them. But um, it was just a, just a still uh, with you know the title and the main uh, actors, and it would probably say you know from Tuesday or something.
0: It's like a lobby card almost. Into the yeah, it
3: like yeah, it is. Yeah. The one I'd
2: really like to see, which I think doesn't survive, is East Lynn on the Western Front.
3: Oh
0: yeah,
3: and those.
2: <laughs> I mean, that's just
0: even just from <laughs> the title that sounds fantastic.
3: Yeah.
0: I want to see Gladys goes to Brighton or Brighton. Oh,
3: oh yeah, to Brighton with Gladys. yeah.
0: <laughs> About a drunk penguin. Yeah. Gladys is a penguin. You can see
3: a photo of Gladys in the Quota Quickest book. Yes, available from all good (laughs) online retails. Um, (laughs) I don't think many stills from from that film survive. And it's a very lovable penguin, I would say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) From what you can tell. From what, yes, I think so. Uh, We should probably wrap up. Did I see a hand anywhere? Oh, there's a hand over there. Yes, hand. Oh, hands everywhere. Oh, there's loads of hands. heretic here.
3: So I'm one of the heretics who just didn't find that very funny at all. But <laughs> and the reason being, I came for the dancing girls, uh, and flat I, I and I don't know if I'm right in this—I associate Flanagan Allen with music and singing. So it's a very kind of odd film in that it just doesn't make the most of the dancers. The singing, the music, what, why?
2: Yeah, it's why? funny,
0: when they sing that song at the end, which is like a sequel to Underneath the Arches, uh, Arches, not archers. that's really nice. I, I mean, and Chessy's voice, that kind of bass yeah. voice, it's fantastic, I'd like to have seen more of that. It, I mean, that's
2: true of all of their films, actually. they They usually feature one song. Right. So like things like Gas Bags and uh, OK For Sound, it's like they do their one big number and then the rest of it is comedy. And I mean, I suppose that's, that's not uncommon in films of this period, you know, that, that there will be a song, but it won't necessarily be a musical.
0: Yeah. And also in the 70s, you used to have this kind of, like Malcolm and Wise and Mike Yarwood yeah. would, would suddenly totally same, just do a kind idea. of, it's a song yeah. at the end, you yeah. know.
3: You would have had Chorus Girls, in the reviews, like the Palladium reviews, so this kind of is carried on into the film. It's just that the the dance routines are a bit flat. I think I mean, especially the second one, which is just a lot of walking around.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but with purpose because waiting for well, a fire to break out. Yes, you know. putting putting Bluebird
3: in the hangar. That if anybody didn't get that reference, Bluebird was Malcolm Campbell's speed machine. Oh. Um, uh, so it was an ironic comment.
0: Oh, Neil's got it. This is a question, and it kind of goes to where Lawrence obviously, uh, is often with uh, the idea of highbrow. That struck me as a film
2: aimed at middle-class audiences, not working-class audiences. Is that part of Julius Hagen's big plan for Quota Quickies, that he goes for a more expensive
0: market in general?
2: Well, I think that speaks to your comment about how these films are... They, they don't necessarily go to working-class areas. They go to suburban cinemas. Mm. So, yes, I think absolutely middle-class audiences who would be going to roadhouse hotels and department stores. And, yeah, I mean, I think Quota Quickies, they span those two audiences. I mean, I think, like we saw Say It With Flowers, which is obviously kind of designed for working-class audiences, but a lot of those murder mystery things, impassive footmen, they're definitely for a mi- for a middle brow. Can I even say it to everybody? I think they're for middle brow audiences, totally. And I think Flanagan are absolutely middle brow, you know, they are I mean they're playing old lags, but their but their appeal is to is to is to I mean it's to working class audiences but also to middle class audiences. It's yeah. quite
3: critical of the middle class, this film. You know, if the if the um department store owners are <laughs> representatives of the middle class, uh they they demonstrate that uh, criminality is not confined to the lower classes. The, the, even the uh, the customers at the roadhouse—they're easily duped, aren't they? They don't <laughs> seem to be terribly. <laughs> they're bright. All getting
0: hammered at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> um.
2: <laughs> but I um, mean, I think it is. I mean, it is rich with. I mean, it's like we were talking about. Uh, I think with the ghost camera initially, we were sort of saying one of the things that's really fascinating about these quickies is that idea of the ways in which they represent a kind of version of. of of England absolutely from 1935 that notion of the department like the department store has just been built in an area that in a suburban area that has clearly been developed in the last 10 years it's like boom like where you can think of any number of suburban areas with department stores that were built in the mid between 1925 and
3: 1935. Peterman Lund. And do we know how many department stores had a troop of about 30 (laughs) women (laughs) (laughs) um, acting as a fire brigade? (laughs) An unsuitable, and Was that down? a thing then? <coughs> <coughs> any more for any more while we uh, we need to... I've got to say up. too, I don't think the costumes were suitable for fighting The shoes alone. They, I mean, <laughs> didn't, uh, well, and indeed the skirts look flammable to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, just a footnote to say that my mum remembered going to see the Crazy Gang when she was in a, a, a boarding house in Hammersmith. It would have been, I guess, the late 50s, early 60s, and they went as a house outing. Um, so I think that must have been the very last days of the Crazy Gang back then. But obviously it was a thing that you would do as a group, you know, yeah. like a kind of works do or a um, group of friends. And um, obviously remembered it from days gone by. So but yeah. go and see Les Mis.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. My dad remembers being, you know, going to London and being taken to see the Crazy Gang as part of that trip to London. That's I right. think it's definitely absolutely. a sort of Les Mis of its moment. I, say, I, mean,
3: I got, you know, my I got my um, best part of the trip to London by going to Hamley's to get some <laughs> toys in the afternoon. And then... Parents took me to see the crazy game. Because they were laughing the and rolling
2: around the aisles while you were uh, thinking, why well,
3: am I remember. here? I not remember. I think I just wanted to get out.
0: And on that bombshell, <laughs> we should probably wrap up because it's getting towards the next film. Uh, thank you, Steve. You, have you got any more editions of this book that's available on all... I might it's have it's a copy in the, in the suitcase. <laughs> <if everybody laughs> it's actually quite, quite pricey online because it's an academic book and not a kind of a... Uh, I, yeah. I got mine... I think for about nineteen pounds a couple of years ago, but the cheapest one I could find yesterday was twenty-six pounds. Right. But it's so that's inflation. it's gold, see, it's yeah. Inflation. I know. But now it's a collector's item. I know. <laughs> um, and in two weeks' time, it is uh Death on the Set, also directed by Leslie Hiscott, a welcome return to Kino Quickies for Henry Kendall, Woo-hoo! who we love. He was in the Ghost Camera, and also he played the nasty one in um, Death of Broadcasting House.
3: Ghost Camera's quality.
0: Ghost Camera is Burn fantastic, house, yeah. Good. And in the, in Death on the Set, he plays himself. He, he, play, he plays he against plays himself. Twins. He plays kind of, not, not twins, but you think they're twins, but they're just people who look like each other. And then there's some special <laughs> effects where Henry plays against Henry, and it's stunning. That's well worth a watch. And... Um, uh, hopefully, I'll see as many of you as possible. Then they're here in uh, in two weeks' time. Can so you, thank you. Can you coming. have a
3: word with um, with Talking Pictures TV? Because I know you, you you you're connected, and I think they'd do a roaring trade if they sold the quota Quickies book. I'll tell them. <laughs> by, I'll tell by, them. They <laughs> managed to take ten percent. I mean, you're as yeah.
2: bad as Julius yeah. Hagen. You're such a salesman. <laughs> if your house burns
0: down while you're here, <laughs> yeah, we'll know what's we'll going on. you. That I don't think it's insured. <laughs> <laughs> it run out at two o'clock. Okay, thank you very much and see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you to Steve Chibnall for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Steve's book, Quota Quickies, is available at countless online retailers and I've posted a link to it in the show notes at kinoquickies.com so you can snap up your very own copy. Remember, there are only two films remaining in the season. If you would like to come to one or both of them, tickets can be booked at ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. Thanks are also due to that sound man, Robin the Soundman. Links to his other work are also in the show notes, and as usual, we are eternally grateful to Paul and all his excellent team at the Kino for the warm welcome they always offer. Kino Quickies is produced by me, Demdellaghi, and none of this will be possible without our resident Quota Quickie expert... Wait for it, our resident Quota cookie expert, Dr. Lawrence Knapper of King's College, London. So let us go back now to A Fire Has Been Arranged to find out how it all ends. Remember, as this is the end of the film, there are spoilers a go-go. So if you'd rather not hear how it concludes, press stop now. And if you'd like to watch the film instead, there's a link on the show notes at KinoCookies.com where you'll be able to bag yourself a copy of the DVD. If you're leaving us now, goodbye and see you next time. But if you're still here, that means you're fine with spoilers. So let us continue. When we left the film, it was all going a bit mad. The three-man criminal gang comprising Bud Flanagan and Ches Allen, plus their friend Hal, have got themselves into a bit of hot water. They have been tricked out of the jewels they stole ten years ago by the daughter of the man they robbed. Then. Having agreed to take part in the scheme to burn down the department store Shuffle and Cuts as part of an insurance scam, the plan has now, unbeknownst to Hal, been abandoned. At the point at which we left the film, Hal had merrily started to burn the building down, while the owners of the store Shuffle and Cuts, who planned the scam, are stuck somewhere out on the A40. Bud and Chez are racing back to try to stop Hal from committing arson but when we last saw them they had just driven into a railway tunnel with a train only seconds behind them. What on earth is going to happen? On the other side of the tunnel the train comes steaming out but where are Bud and Chez? Never fear they are safe and well and emerge trundling along in only half a car with their clothes torn to shreds. Phew! Somehow, they then find themselves in the middle of a race on Brooklyn's racing track.
1: Get off the course! Get off the course!
0: Chez manages to avoid collision with the speeding cars and, spotting an exit, hurtles off the track and bumps into a grassy knoll, disturbing a courting couple.
1: Sorry. Oh, I've taken her out. I've taken her out. She works at the school. Works at the school? Teacher? Wasn't necessary.
0: Whoa! Ho, ho. Back at the store, Hal is making good progress on getting the blaze started with small fires dotted all over the basement. Toby spots the smoke and alerts Blenkinsop. Their lunch interrupted, the fire ladies drag the fire engine out into the street and begin to unspool the hose just as Bud and Ches arrive back in their half a car. They begin to remonstrate with Blenkinsop, who's only hampering proceedings with his faffing and indecision, when Betty realises that somebody is trapped in the burning building.
1: Get a move! Toby, Toby! What about it? Never mind Toby, can't you get a move? He's on? in the building! What's he doing in the building? Oh, he went to telephone, he would be burned to death. Aren't you going to do something? Are you three going to stand there while a man's burnt to death? Why don't you save him? If there's a man amongst you, let him step forward! Bud and
0: shoved shoved Blenkinsop forward. Hooray! Here are today. As Blenkinsop stumbles into the fire holding an axe, Bud and Chess connect the hose to the water supply and start to spray the flames. But wouldn't you know it, Bud has unwittingly attached the hose to a petrol tanker which doesn't help much with the task of extinguishing flames. To make it worse, the pump explodes sending the unsuitably clad fire ladies scattering. <coughs> As the boys incompetently attempt to extinguish the fire and the pump, Blenkinsop, who had gone into the blaze to rescue Toby, is rescued by Toby. Although all life has been saved, the building is razed to the ground. At a payphone somewhere in the home counties, shuffle and cut glean what has occurred, but where a shuffle is mortified and fears they are facing destitution, Kurt is less perturbed.
1: Now, friends, it seems, have arrived too late. Oh, you talk as if it were nothing. We're facing absolute disaster. We're crushed, ruined. No, I think not. We can always reopen the dear old gambling hill. Well, we haven't got a staff. On the contrary, my dear Shuffle, we have an excellence.
0: And that excellent staff comprises, of course, Flanagan and Alan, and as we flash forward a few weeks, they are now working with Shuffle and Cut in their latest venture, an illegal casino in which they fleece customers with a bent roulette table. Suddenly an alarm goes off, a warning that the joint is about to be raided by the fuzz.
1: Now keep calm. We all know what to do.
0: In a well-practiced routine, the staff and customers convert the casino into a sedate gathering of teetotal gentlefolk attending a recital of wholesome music.
1: And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're we're going to have the pleasure of hearing a, a sentimental ballad by our old friends Messrs. Flanagan and Allen. Building flats where the archers used to be. There's somebody eating where we used to be sleeping. They're paying rents where we once lived rent free. Seems and all okay. The Come on. To the, door.
0: the police seem satisfied. And a fire has been arranged, draws to a close, with Budden Chess, singing us out. At our old abode. Now we
1: wonder if we'll have to take that open road. We're walking round now as sad as can be. They're building flats where the orchards
4: used to be.